Hello and welcome to Hear Her Sports. I am your host, Elizabeth Emery. As always, thank you for tuning in. I am so happy you're here for this incredible guest. Joining me in this episode is Deanna Bellany, who works in public health at the Harvard Medical School Center for Primary Care and also co-founded Diversified Dietetics. I just love talking about food and nutrition, so having Deanna on the show is a special treat. Nutrition weaves itself into so many aspects of our lives, which is something Deanna knows a lot about and gets into today. We also talk about her mission, mentorship, systematic racism in healthcare, the immense complexity of that, and what she sees in the future at some point beyond this current COVID-19 pandemic. And because in the last newsletter, I wrote about racism as contrived, not something that just happens. I want to point out that Deanna mentions academic gatekeepers in dietetics who have been keeping the field mostly white. If you are not a subscriber to the newsletter, you can do that at hearhersports.com. Well, let's get to it. I am so, so excited to have registered dietitian Deanna Bellany on the podcast today. Deanna completed her bachelor's degree in human nutrition and foods at the University of Houston and went on to complete a master's in public health from the University of Texas School of Public Health. She is the program manager for systems transformation at Harvard Medical Center for Primary Care. She is passionate about system level changes that positively impact the health of minority and underserved communities. Her other passion is the nonprofit Diversified Dietetics, which she co-founded in the spring of 2018. The mission of Diversified Dietetics is to increase the racial and ethnic diversity in the field of nutrition by empowering nutrition leaders of color through mentoring, education, and building community. The organization is working to attract, encourage, and empower students and young professionals of color who are seeking careers in the field of nutrition and dietetics. Deanna, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me, Elizabeth. Sure. Could you tell us about Diversified Dietetics and... I want to say I was really shocked to read that 75% of dietitians are white. So obviously what you're doing is really important. Yeah, of course. So as you mentioned, it started around spring 2018. So we're a little bit over two years old. um, And it was really born out of necessity, really. So I became a registered dietitian. And the process is pretty convoluted, (laughs) I would say. And there's a lot of barriers, both financial and otherwise, to become a dietitian. So it's a privilege. I'm I'm glad that I was able to get there. But I became a dietitian, didn't really recognize how non-diverse the field was until I got to a conference. It's the biggest conference for nutrition professionals in the world. It's called the FINCI for short, but it's the Food and Nutrition Conference and Expo. And I had done a lot of my training to become a dietitian in Houston, which is a pretty diverse city. Um, And I had heard about the stereotype of what a dietitian was, what a dietitian looked like, almost always as a joke. It was just like a thin, small white woman, you know, usually (laughs) usually blonde, sometimes brunette. Right, that's Um, funny. Probably had a husband in finance. Like it was just like a funny stereotype that people joked about. But then when I got to this conference, I had an experience that made me realize that the stereotype was a little bit more insidious than it was originally kind of posed as when I heard about it. So I was in line, you know, at this conference, there's a bunch of different vendors. So you can try a bunch of different foods at the expo. And I was waiting in line to try some yogurt. (laughs) And um, a lady turned around to me and a colleague of mine who was also a dietitian of color. And she said, wow, there's not that many of you here. And then turned back around, got her free sample and like walked away. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it was just like, uh, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, I guess <laughs> that I don't know what that means. But I, of course, you know what that means. Um, yeah. 
but it was just really crazy for me to hear that and look around and see like the statistics. So like you mentioned, less than 12% of dietitians identify as dietitians of color. And you could see it on that conference floor. You could see the lack of diversity everywhere. Um, And there wasn't that many of us there. And it was the largest conference in the world for nutrition professionals. And so I was like, that's, that's a problem because we serve communities that look like, you know, the U.S. does. It's very diverse. It's becoming increasingly more diverse. And so I talked to my program director, who was kind of my mentor when I was getting my dietetic license, and she mentioned that this is something that's been going on for a while. The statistic has been largely unchanged for decades. And in fact, there are many program directors who are kind of the gatekeepers of our profession that like it that way and you know, do mm-hmm. what they can to make sure that their program has the, the dietitian that they have in mind. So from that, I just was motivated to want to put something together that I could help students and professionals get into this field, excel in this field, and there's no doubt that they belong here. So that's kind of where my perspective of Diversify came from. My co-founder is an educator in Atlanta, and she has a different experience uh, for where the idea came from. But we basically joined forces, had similar passions around wanting to diversify this field, and assembled the nonprofit. And it took off from there. Just again, the need for a space that was welcoming and empowering for students of color, for professionals of color to grow and to feel like they belong in this field. And it's not just for the small, petite white woman was really needed. And so um, we've been going ever since. Yeah, I mean, I think it's so great. And again, I really was shocked by the statistic you mentioned. And so obviously it's super important. That stereotype and what is the result of that stereotype has such far-reaching implications. It's not Mm -hmm. just about, you know, like, oh, we need more diverse people in the field. It just really impacts, you know, what kind of work is done. No, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there's so much research out there that talks about the importance of representation and importance of diversity for practitioners to just become better practitioners and better serve communities but also for the patients and what their needs are. And if our ultimate goal as nutrition professionals is to, you know, help people live nutritious and healthy lives, are we really able to do that if we can't meet them and understand, you know, all the different intricacies of the different cultures? Because food is just, it's so integral in so many people's lives. Yeah. And I love that you mentioned that representation is important. And I read somewhere, I I think it was in your article for Self Magazine about making the wellness world more inclusive. And you said representation is empowering. And I just love that. It just takes that phrase to another level. And I think, yeah, terrific. Absolutely. It's hard to be what you can't see. And I think exactly. I've I've lived through that in different ways. And I just, it rings so true even now. So it's, it's definitely what motivates us to keep going. Yeah. What do you think is special about nutrition? Oh man, I love my field so much because everybody eats. Everybody <laughs> eats in some sort of way, even if right. you know, it's through a tube or by mouth or in all the different ways that you can get food. So I think there's something really special there. And I think also like the relationship that people have with food and the memories that people have with food is just a really special field. And there's so many different avenues you can go into. So I think because of those like different cultural implications that are sometimes attached with food, it makes it a really special field that emphasizes the need for that diversity. Yeah. Talk about sort of the impact of representation in the actual food. I mean, we've talked about it Mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, the professional part, but what about the food and cultural diversity? 
it's so interesting because I'll get on my kind of the, why our education system was not as great because I came out of my dietetic internship kind of preaching the lessons that I was taught all throughout school. And of course, you know, the field's not diverse, which means the teachers aren't either. Right. And so again, was working in Houston, which has such a diverse community. And I was passionate about teaching community nutrition, but I was not equipped to do that. So I was coming into these diverse communities talking about kale smoothies and quinoa. And I mean, people would entertain you and be like, oh yeah, I've heard about that. (laughs) Or they would just be like, no, we don't eat that. (laughs) So I just think, again, that, that that's a reason why diversity in so many levels is important. Because if you can't meet people where they are, it really is I I feel like disrespectful to come to these communities that, you know, you don't understand what they eat and you don't even listen. You are the nutrition expert. So you come in and you're like, you should eat this and you should eat that. And this is how your plate should look without even taking a step back and being like, okay, tell me about you. Tell me about what you like to eat. Tell me about how you cook. What do you have access to? There's just so many more questions that should be asked and more listening that should be done to really understand the diversity of food in all of these different communities. And so, you know, Diversified Dietetics is looking for ways to, to beef up the system. Because even as a woman of color, I was doing these same things because I was taught that this is how, how you teach. This was what the foods that were brought up. And the foods that we were taught around were so Eurocentric. It was right. either, you know, this Mediterranean diet, which was largely white European diet. And all the other foods from African cultures and Asian cultures and, you know, the rest of the world, the rest of the globe uh, were reserved for like, you know, a small part of one course that focused just on cultural foods. Mm -hmm. When it should be integrated into education, you know, all of the courses, we should be taught about all different foods in every single, you know, aspect of our education. But it's just, you know, like I said, very Eurocentric. And my co-founder has a really great self article on that as well that talks about why it's important for us to have less of a Eurocentric view on healthy eating, because it really stigmatizes healthy eating to just exist in one culture. And we know that that's not true. And it could discourage people from wanting to eat healthier. I know when I was teaching in schools, I would have students tell me like, no, miss, that's white food. We don't eat that. (laughs) And I mean, that's what the perception of healthy eating was, because that's all that they had seen via the media or all of the different ways that we consume what the norm is, quote unquote. And then it makes your own food like bad. Exactly. Yeah. If you're eating bad, you're eating, you know, Chinese food or Mexican food. That's just not true. (laughs) Right. So give me an example of what you're doing now when you go into or how you're suggesting going into a more diverse community and like sort of what the process is of teaching a non-Eurocentric plate. Yeah, I I found it's really challenging because this norm has kind of infiltrated everyone's psyche. So people want to eat more, you know, westernized diets sometimes that I found in my experience. But typically what I'll do is, again, just listen, just ask questions about what people like and be really affirming that all of these foods can still fit into your diet and be critical thinking about, okay, if someone does not want to eat brown rice, that's fine. Let's find a way to get those nutrients that are important in brown rice, like the fiber, in a different way. Like maybe they have white rice and then they can have a side of a vegetable that they really enjoy. So what are ways that you can accomplish the same goals of these foods that are healthy but aren't already in someone's diet? Have you learned about foods that you hadn't known about? Yeah, absolutely. I think I I love Instagram for, for so many reasons, but 
really being exposed to different foods that people grew up with or that they're cooking. I can't say I've personally tried to cook any of them because that's <laughs> not my forte, but I've learned so much. I don't do as much one-on-one nutrition counseling now, but I think that it's, it's like, I'm, I'm glad that it's a resource that's out there because there's times when I know I can't serve a client because I don't have the, the education or the knowledge to do so. And so I can easily make a referral because I have these resources and, and these people that I have built relationships with over social media that are also dietitians of color doing amazing things in the communities that are important to them. So yeah, it's been a great learning experience. Cool. Well, I want to talk about systematic changes in our healthcare because that's so important and really yeah. interesting right now. But first, to let us get started and sort of as a backdrop, tell me about the center where you're working now, your center yeah. for primary care and what, what actually you're doing there. Yeah. So it's a part of Harvard Medical School and it's called the Center for Primary Care, as you mentioned. And its mission is to just fight for primary care to improve lives around the world. And so the work that I do specifically is on the systems transformation team. And really we work with a lot of community health centers at helping them build stronger interdisciplinary teams. And we do that through training and workshops, but our goal is to build stronger teams because we believe when teams work better together, there'll be better health outcomes for their patients. So in healthcare, you know, there's really this power dynamic where physicians or providers really have a lot of the power, but if we're able to redistribute that and really embrace that, you know, the nurse has a really big role, the nurse's aide has a big role, the dietitian has a big role, you need the community health worker, all of these people that are a part of a team, we can really drive better health outcomes for the patients. And then we also weave in some training around quality improvement. So what are the best ways to think about how to change a system? How do we communicate better? How do we address difficult conversations? So that's the bulk of the work that I do working with kind of, yeah, healthcare systems as a larger scale, but also smaller and getting into uh, community health centers, which typically will serve more underserved populations. Mm -hmm. You know, when I think about the health system, it just becomes really complicated because it, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it's such a web and hits so many different parts. Like, how are you dealing with that complexity? Uh, Yeah, that's such a good point. I think So coming from doing a lot of community nutrition before I started this job, I I knew I wanted something that was a little bit more on the business side. But every time I'm like, oh, what was I asking for? Because it is so complicated. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. And thinking about kind of like the the finances and how you pay for healthcare, and there's not really a lot of support for preventative work. And I'm hoping Mm -hmm. things will will turn around soon. Um, And I think people are focusing more on those preventive goals and kind of what impacts people's health outside of just eating and exercising. Right. But yeah, I'm, I'm grateful for the people that I work with. It's also a very interdisciplinary team and who bring different perspectives, whether through health economics or, you know, leadership and change management or being physicians themselves. And I think that's the value of learning to work better on interdisciplinary teams because there are so many diverse perspectives. But no, it's, it's very confusing. And it's like, will we ever get anything done? Will things be solved? But I'm glad we have kind of a smaller scope on on our team. So we're able to kind of see the impact of building up healthcare leaders in a way that will hopefully like have ripple effects down down the road. But yeah, healthcare is a mess. Yeah, it is a mess. (laughs) And, you know, like we're in such particular times right now. How has the pandemic impacted your work and the work of, of others in the diversified dietetics community? Yeah. So I think it, it depends on who you ask. Because as I mentioned, 
working in dietetics, you can do so many different things. Of course, there's the clinical work that a lot of people do, and they're trying hard to nutritionally support COVID patients or non-COVID patients. I think what's been really interesting is talking about how do we support those that haven't been impacted directly by COVID, but also have these chronic health conditions that aren't being addressed because you know, because the focus is on COVID and also because some people are, you know, fearful of going into the clinic and, and, you know, getting a checkup on their diabetes or their blood pressure. So are they able to manage it at home? And are we making sure they have those resources like food and access to, you know, safe living and housing? And then I think there's also the people that are doing the community nutrition work. So I think it's ramped up for a lot of people. Of course, there's those in the school food service that are trying to feed students, even though students are in school and and the people that work at the food banks are trying to kind of assess the needs of their communities. For me personally, we've again been trying to support community health centers and some of the projects they were working on earlier this year were around social determinants of health, which is Mm -hmm. even more important now. So it's ramped up for them, but also some were around like, let's launch group visits for the first time. But now we can't do group visits because people don't want to be together. Um, We we need to social distance. So how can we look again at how to provide care for those that have chronic diseases in a way that also, you know, acknowledges what this new normal looks like? What's a group visit? So basically diabetes is an example I'll give. So a group of patients, with diabetes come together to talk about how they're managing it. They talk about, you know, education, a topic around, let's say, like doing a foot check or like, how are you eating? Do you know how to uh, check your blood sugar? So it's really just like an education, but in a group setting, as opposed to getting that um, one-on-one. And it is really effective for just building more peer support and, and helping people manage their diabetes. Well, let's get into some of the systematic barriers to good health in the U.S. And one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on the show is to ask about the bigger picture of health and nutrition as we move forward beyond the pandemic, you know, into 2021 and beyond. And, you know, particularly because COVID has exposed so many of these health problems that have been in existence for, you know, forever. Yeah. So I guess, what are you imagining going forward? Yeah. Oh, man, that's a good question. I think, I mean, to your point, it has exposed a lot of the inequities that have already existed in this system. And I know for me, I really try to emphasize to people that, you know, these have existed for a while, A, but also health is more than just what you eat and drink. Because I think it's so easy to be like, oh, well, this community doesn't eat the right way. What is the right way, first of all? Are you stereotyping a whole community based on whatever your, you know, biases are. And again, to these social determinants of health, which are things that so much impact your health, but that the healthcare system, in my opinion, hasn't really focused on as much until very recently. So yes, I can have an appointment with my doctor and they can tell me, okay, here's the medication. Here's the things that you should be eating. Make sure you're walking, you know, 30 minutes every day. But if I go home and I don't have access to food or I don't have access to sidewalks to be able to walk, there's not a park near me, there's, I live in a food desert, so there's no grocery stores around me, how am I really able to do these things? And so I, I don't know how optimistic I am that things will change quickly, even though mm-hmm. we are recognizing these, these disparities and these issues, because again, the funding is, is not necessarily there. So I think that needs to be the first thing that changes. We need to support community health centers more. We need to support preventive care more. 
because that is how we need to kind of address these larger systems issues. And we need to recognize like that racism plays a huge role in all of this. Like where you live is more dependent on your health than your, just the things you eat and the things that you drink, your environmental kind of area really impacts your health and health for generations to come. And that goes back to kind of, you know, redlining and and so many of these policies that really disadvantage these groups. And so I still think we have a long way to go in acknowledging all those different issues like racism that impacted people's health for generations. And we have a really long way to go in financially supporting ways for people to get access to safe living and grocery stores and all of these basic needs. Yeah, you know, you mentioned one of the things I wanted to talk about, which is when it first was exposed that African-American communities were feeling a greater impact of COVID. Mm -hmm. You know, I read a lot of stuff that said, oh, you know, that community needs to eat better. And I thought, you know, like you're missing so much. And this is, again, going back to my complexity question is like, you know, how do you deal with that, those systematic problems? And you you sort of talked about it. Yeah. And I think I think I am excited that the future kind of healthcare providers are being educated about all of these different things. But there was, I guess, a a huge amount of people that weren't like, as a job, your provider is to do X, Y, and Z. And sometimes it can seem like outside of the scope. And I definitely acknowledge that physicians and providers have a lot on their plates. And so that's, again, why I am so passionate about training up teams, because there are qualified people on the healthcare team that can help you do this work. Community health workers are so essential because they're workers that are from the community, that know the resources of the community, and that are typically more diverse than the physicians and the dietitians that exist in healthcare systems. So what are ways that we can amplify their voices, make sure they're paid fairly, and for them to be able to do their job and connect the patients with the resources that are available? But no, I completely agree. It was really annoying for me as a dietitian as well to kind of hear those same messages and from people of color, you know, saying these messages as well. And it's like, we have not done our job to really talk about all of the different things that impact health and that it's more, again, than just what you're putting in your mouth. Right. And it's also not just an individual, some sort of individual defect or choice that you're making. That's Absolutely. I know right before we launched Diversify, I was talking to somebody I was in a class with about the idea And she said to me, she was like, oh, so why do these communities eat this way? I'm like, they Mm -hmm. eat the same way you or your community does. Like there is no, there are tons of people from every group that, that eats all sorts of ways. Like there is not, it's not pinpointed to just one community, but all of the other things that impact them, like racism and stress and the environment that they live in and, you know, all these other different things are unique to certain groups. And so how are we accounting for that? How are we being responsible for fixing those things? Is, is something that I don't think we've we've really nailed down on on a systems level. I think right. there's a lot of individual organizations doing a lot of great work, but the acknowledgement needs to come from much higher. Right. right. Have your thoughts about nutrition or dietetics or any of the stuff that we've been talking about changed during the last couple of months during the pandemic? Hmm, that's a good question. I don't think so. Not really. I think, again, the way that things have been expressed has made me slightly more hopeful that things will be funneled in the right direction and that we will care more about underserved communities and we'll care more about all the things that make up, again, building up wellness. I don't think my perspective has changed. I think I have seen, 
and this is not really related to COVID, but I think the way that my practice has shifted is in kind of the acknowledgement of weight bias and weight stigma that exists and how that impacts communities of color as well. And that people genuinely believe that if you're in a bigger body that you can't be healthy. And I think that that is something that is just so ridiculous. So I think that's a space that I'm, I'm trying to learn more and more about. But I think if anything, that's kind of been the largest shift for me since becoming a dietitian to now. If you could make, you know, money where no object changes <laughs> or, or, you know, workload was no object either, you know, what would you, what do you imagine? What are you imagining in the future? Mm. Yeah, that's a really good question. I feel like, again, it has to start with making sure that people have access to housing. I think housing is one of those really big issues right now. There's not enough money going in there, but also it's such a big problem that like, how much money do we really need? Who knows what that figure looks like, but I'm sure it's, it's huge. It would go towards making sure that people have access to affordable and nutrient dense foods, that there was a way to have a workforce that more closely reflects what the communities look like. Like those would be my three big hot button things that I wish I could just tackle. <laughs> I like them. I like yeah. that. Yeah. You know, the other thing that I've been thinking a lot about during the pandemic is, will this change our thinking about health? You know, like, and I mean that in a really big picture, you know, like, will we think about health and fitness differently? And one of the reasons I'm asking you is because I really liked what you have on your Instagram bio of that you're sick of diet culture. (laughs) Yeah. So what do you think? Do you think people are going to change their view of what health and fitness is? Oh, man, I... Maybe I have my like pessimistic lens on today. I think it's going to take a really long time. I I do think it's going to take a long time, but I think that there are a lot of people have the issue of how toxic diet culture can be that are raising up the issue of, you know, health disparities. Yeah. I, I think it'll take a little while again with any sort of like culture change. It takes a lot of people. It takes a lot of leadership, but, but yeah, I do. I think it will happen eventually. (laughs) I just been wondering, you know, because the pandemic or the COVID strikes your respiratory system, for example. Yeah. So that means actually dealing with that rather than just exercising to look good. So that was one reason I was thinking about it. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the question is always like, yes, we know this is important, but who's going to do something about it? And I think that division of labor still needs to get kind of figured out or settled in. Like whose responsibility is it to make sure that, you know, people have the ability to walk safely around their neighborhood? Is it the healthcare system who's responsible for the health outcomes? Is it the government who, you know, builds parks and does city planning? Is it the nonprofits and the NGOs who, you know, are passionate about these different niche things and really do work in very specific ways? Or is it everybody's, which I think it is, but if it is everyone's, then how do we work together to make sure all of these infrastructure and systems levels are addressed? And I, I don't know if there's been that coordinated of an effort yet. But I am hopeful that something more positive will come out of all of these acknowledgements that that people are kind of being, their eyes are being open up to. Right. Wow. You added a whole new level of complexity to that question. <laughs> <laughs> I think about this a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, on a personal note, now that places are opening up and Boston is opening up, yeah. how are you managing that? And, you know, like, what do you think about opening up? Yeah, it's really scary. (laughs) So it's so funny right now. I'm actually in Texas because when um, the pandemic kind of hit, 
uh, it was an interesting time personally. My, my husband's in school or was getting a business degree, but we knew he wasn't, of course, going to be able to graduate in person. I was working remotely anyway. And Boston weather being the way Boston weather was, I was just like, let's just get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so we came, my family's from Texas, as, it, right. as I mentioned at the beginning. So, so we're here and, and things are opening up pretty rapidly here. Definitely people not wearing masks here in Texas. I think Boston was following those rules better from what I could see when we were there in Boston. But yeah, it's really, it's just so much uncertainty. And it's just so interesting the way things are opening up. I question too, like, how is it that we can open up barbershops before we open up schools? I don't know. But <laughs> it's just, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's slightly scary. But I think if people are responsible and, you know, business owners follow the rules, even though I know they're excited to open up their doors. I recognize the importance of the economy and, and wanting to get that back on track. But I think we're going to just be living in uncertainty for a little bit longer. Are you going to be going out to restaurants and bars soon? Probably not. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to probably keep ordering, you know, online, picking up at the, <laughs> the pickup window, right? going for my walks and, and wearing a mask. But yeah, I don't know if I'm, I'm mentally ready just yet. Me neither, actually. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, what do you like to cook? Oh, so I was on a big bread kick for a while, as many of us in quarantine were. Right. How did and that go? Really? You know, surprisingly, I had a couple of, you know, fails, but got the hang of it. I wasn't as sophisticated as some people were with the, the sourdough starter kit. I don't know if you've seen any of those, but they were making their own yeast and then making yeah, their own bread. No, not for me. <laughs> on another level. <laughs> But yeah, I love love like simple. I love incorporating vegetables into all dishes. And like I said, we're living with family right now, and I'm kind of pegged as like the vegetable queen, the salad queen. Like, oh, what vegetable are we gonna have today, Deanna? What salad are you making for us? So, I keep it simple. <laughs> Do you have a nutrition, health, food philosophy? Ooh, you know, I don't. <laughs> um, I, I really think that you know all foods can fit. I really am a big follower of intuitive eating. And I think that's always a journey. I can definitely send some links for those that are new to intuitive eating. But outside of that, again, I just believe that all foods can fit. We should be embracing people and you know their nutrition needs. Um, it's so individualized, but I think if you can find a way to listen to your body, listen to your hunger cues, listen to your fullness cues, reject that you should be eating a certain way or that there's one diet that's going to change your your whole life. I think that's most important and just kind of tune into what your body needs and live and eat intuitively. Have you always been into food? So it's funny. No, I started my education as a journalism major. I was just like, I'm going to be a journalist. But it was before the time that kind of blogging and like website journalism and the internet was booming. And so my advisor in college told me that I should choose a new major. She was like, this is dying. Don't even worry about it. Find another, <laughs> find something else to do. So I had remembered there was a TV show that I watched in London right before starting college. And it was just something that was kind of on in the background, but I got hooked on it because it was these two women. They were sort of nutrition nannies was I think how the, they were described. And there was a woman who was dealing with depression and, you know, was pre-diabetic, had high blood pressure. She even had like yeast growing in weird places on her body. And mm. they went in and kind of taught her how to cook, how to shop, really helped her find some physical movement that worked for her. 
And through all of those interventions, it kind of reversed these things that she was having. It made her mood better. The yeast stopped growing. You know, she was able to control her blood pressure. And I was like, wow, I had no idea that food can impact your body that way, both mentally and physically. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of my first introduction to the world of nutrition and when I became interested in it. So I changed my major and then did some work with the San Antonio Food Bank, which I think was kind of the experience that made me know this was the field for me and being able to work in the community and help start a community garden and do nutrition education with, you know, from kids to families to seniors. So that's when I got interested in food and in kind of like the nutrition space. Yeah. Talk about the mental connection to the food that we eat. Yeah. I mean, if anyone's been, I'll take kind of the approach of what got me fed up with diet culture, but if anyone's been on a diet, they know kind of the mental gymnastics that you do while you're on it. And, you know, it's physically and psychologically draining to have to think about like, okay, how many calories did I get in today? Let me put it into my app. Oh, this has this in it. So I can't have that. And I was definitely the the dietitian that tried all of those diets because A, because I was curious, B, but I also think that it was because of me wanting to like maintain this thin kind of privilege. I I definitely acknowledge that that was part of why I would go on diets. And so when I was doing like a whole 30, I was out with friends and was so sad. Like I was surrounded by people who were laughing and having a good time eating. And here I was just like, nope, can't have that. Nope, can't have that. And was getting really sad about it. And so I recognize that I don't have to do this. Like this is a choice that I'm making, but just we get told by so many different avenues that this is the way we need to look and this is the way we need to eat. And this is just based on nothing. You know, it's it's based on just, you know, the ideal of this is how your body should look. And I think that that is damaging mentally. And again, I think that food is tied to so many different things. It should make you happy. It should bring joy. So I think that there's a way to kind of make peace with with foods and the, the do's and the don'ts and challenge people to say like, yes, I can still have a general healthy diet, even if I eat X, Y, and Z, or even if you know my BMI happens to be outside of what's quote unquote normal. So I, I know there's also science around kind of specific foods that are attributed to mood and kind of your gut bacteria and all of those things. But I know for me, it was just kind of the psychological impact of the way people would say you need to eat or the way people say you need to look and how you got there and how psychologically damaging that is on top of the kind of bias, again, that people that this country specifically has around those in a larger body. So I think all of those things combined made me kind of develop my stance on why I'm sick of diet culture and it's just constant rules and with ignoring kind of you listening to yourself and your own body. How have you helped people get to that point as well? You know, people that you've worked with. Yeah, I think it's hard because it's, again, it's right now very counterculture. And when I tell people, you know, I'm a dietitian and they're like, oh, what do you think about paleo? And I'm like, I hate all diets. (laughs) They're like, oh, wait, what? Why? (laughs) Right. Or they're like, oh, I'm going to start cutting this out. And I respect their decision. Like, I, I, I think that, you know, people have the decision to do whatever they want to do. But I just say like, personally, you know, diets are ineffective. The science has proven that it's a billion dollar industry. I think it's all a scam, but also, you know, you don't have to look a certain way, like do what's right for you. And so I think just by mentioning it, it just brings a whole different perspective that people maybe hadn't thought about like, oh, wait, there's a world where I can live where I'm not dieting. I think that's been the biggest impact, whether people are ready for it or not has definitely been, you know, a variation, but 
luckily again, because of Instagram, if people are, and they kind of raise that to me, then I can point them to a lot of great resources of people that are intuitive eating professionals or that are dietitians that work in that space on a day-to-day basis. So, but I think just raising up the notion that you can live in a world where you don't diet is mind-blowing for some people. Right. Shocking. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Well, before we wrap up, do you want to add anything? No, thank you so much for having me on this. I would just point people to the Diversified Dietetics website to learn more about all the great things we do, or if they want to support a student, they can definitely do that in a variety of ways. And if they're interested in the field of nutrition, which is a very exciting field to reach out and to let me know, and I would love to help them through that journey. But thanks so much for for having me on your podcast. You're very welcome. And it was a real pleasure. And, you know, we didn't even talk about the incredible mentorship program that you have as part of your organization. It's really, really terrific. That's my baby. Yeah. I'll give a brief snippet about the mentor program. Please. As I mentioned, you know, wanting to provide a way that that people could feel empowered in, in the profession of nutrition. Mentoring has always been really important to me because I didn't seek out a mentor and had some later in life and was just like, oh, this is amazing. Like, wait, you can have people in your life that can help you get to where you want to go. So our mentor program, it runs for 10 months and we pair students of color with the dietitian that's in the field that they're interested in pursuing. And we give them kind of month-to-month guidance on things to talk about, whether it's setting goals, whether it's doing interviews, getting through your application process, but also we try to pair them with a person of color. So again, representation is so important and also can be rare depending on where you're living. Mm -hmm. So to have another dietitian of color that's like, I've been here, I've been through that. Yes, I acknowledge that that experience was, you know, this or that, this is how you can get through it. This is how I got through it. So those kind of resources, but also tangible ones with like your resume, you know, you should tweak it this way or tweak it that way. Again, the, the empowering and the reducing of barriers is always our goal. So we've successfully paired around 80 students in the last two years. And so we're really excited to keep it growing um, and expanding. And eventually our goal is to one day have like a conference where we can bring all these people together to be able to oh, network and grow. Great. Yeah. So I'm excited for it to continue to grow, but please find out more about it on our website at diversifiedietetics.org. And I really loved a story that I think you told about yourself, about one of your mentors who wrote a letter to get you into a conference. And I thought, yeah, Yeah. that, that is awesome. Yeah, no, Derek Neal is his name and he is a health official in Victoria County, I think is the county that he works for. And it was eye-opening to realize that a mentor, you know, yes, they could provide you with tips and tricks for your resume, but also the advocacy part of a mentor to just be like, you deserve to be in this space and I'm going to help you get there. And to just kind of pull you up and get you there was just amazing. And I was dealing at the time with it professionally with kind of a manager. I was having a hard time with getting that advocacy piece. So just to have someone externally do it was like, huh, Great. This is amazing. Um, So I hope to do the same, you know, with Diversify for so many other students. And I think, you know, mentorship can can be in any field. So if there's professionals out there, I think there's no small way to give back. You can definitely be a mentor at whatever stage you're at professionally. Well, great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Elizabeth. It was great talking with you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's it for this week's show. A big thank you to Deanna for taking time to be here to address such a timely topic. Head over to the show notes at hearhersports.com to find links that she mentioned during our conversation, including on intuitive eating. 
Follow the podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Hear Her Sports. Our design is by Agnes Studio and music by the band Goldmines. Stay healthy and safe. COVID is still a thing. Till next time, bye-bye. Women's Running Stories, where we explore the intersection between running and life. Because every woman who is committed to a running journey has a story to tell, and this is where you'll find those stories. I am host and producer Sheree Louise Turner. I'm a 53-year-old runner, and together with original music by musician and runner Cormac O'Regan, we bring these inspirational stories to life. Please join us to fuel your adventures.